All right, grab a Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 17. At some point tonight, we're going to read most of this chapter. You can follow along in the notes. We will start by checking your lists. I asked you to make a list of the six best-known stories from the Old Testament. And so here is my list. The, the best-known, most familiar, most recognizable stories from the Old Testament, even among people who maybe don't attend church. I think some form of the creation story has to be on that list. In the beginning, God created. Everybody include that? Some of you did not include that. Some of you, I'm already off the hook. I do not have to buy you lunch. Creation. Second, Noah in the ark. You got that one? Of course. Third, we're just going to lump it all together, Moses in the Exodus. There's been so many movies, you got to put that one on the list. People are familiar with that. Number four, Jonah in the great fish. Everybody got that one? How many of you are still hanging on? Wow. My calendar's going to be full. Daniel in the lion's den. Very nice. And David and Goliath. How many of you got all six? Some of you? No, nobody? Nobody. Wow. No. That does not count because that means you missed one if you split that into two. No, sir. No, sir. David and Goliath. I think it's clear that David and Goliath is the most famous story from David's life. And it may be one of the most famous stories from all of the Old Testament. If you grew up in a church home... It's a story that you heard a lot growing up. You hear it when you go to vacation Bible school at some point. You hear it in children's Sunday school. If you had a children's Bible of any kind when you were little, uh, obviously those Bibles don't include all of the stories from the Old Testament, but that's one of them that they're sure to include, especially in a children's Bible, because it's young David, it's little David who's fighting the battle. You can buy action figures at the Christian bookstore of David and Goliath, which I always found to be a little bit strange. I don't know if you ever bought those for your kids or you have those at your house. We don't buy them at our house. I'm not mad at you if you do buy them. I just think it's strange to buy a Goliath action figure. He curses God when he shows up on the pages of the Scripture. And there he is. You can buy him in the the Christian bookstore. Outside of church, the David and Goliath story has taken on a life of its own and it's entered our cultural vocabulary. And so when you watch the NCAA tournament and you've got all of these basketball teams, big schools and little schools crammed into one big amazing basketball tournament, at some point you have Duke versus Davidson. And they say it's a David and Goliath matchup. It's the big powerhouse and the little bitty guy who who really doesn't have a chance. I found today several leadership books. They weren't religious in any way, shape, or form, but just leadership books talking about the David and Goliath principle, sort of putting a spin on the David and Goliath story, saying David really had the advantage in the battle and Goliath was at the disadvantage, and applying that to leadership. You may see the same sort of thing when you turn on the Olympics. I don't know when the the next Olympics is coming up, but it feels like we ought to be close, and they'll, you know, there's Russia facing Trinidad and Tobago and something. And they say it's David and Goliath. It's the little bitty guy against the big guy. So we're familiar with this story. My guess is that most 
church-going people, when they come to the story of David and Goliath, make one of two mistakes as they read it and they try to think about how it might apply to their life. The first mistake is to read it and say, that's a nice children's story. It's nice for the kids. It teaches you some sort of, you know, morality tale, some sort of character building thing. And really, we just want to teach that story to our kids. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with me today. I think that would be one mistake. I think the more common mistake is to read the David and Goliath story and to put yourself in the center of it so that you sort of vicariously put yourself in the position of David and try to relive the story through David's eyes. There's something to be learned from how David handled himself in this story, and we're going to talk about that. But you and I do not belong at the center of the story of David's life, especially when it comes to the story of David and Goliath. I want you to start just by thinking about the setting a little bit, and I'm going to give you a little geography lesson and show you a few pictures to get going. Here's a map that gives you some idea of where it all takes place. Right there in the middle, you see a line down, and it says Valley of Elah. That's where this battle takes place, in the Valley of Elah. And over on the left, there are Philistine cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. If you read the Old Testament, you come across those cities numerous times. They're all sort of Philistine cities, all loosely allied together. Over to the right, you can see Bethlehem. So David was uh, from Bethlehem. He's going to make the journey about 10 to 15 miles from Bethlehem over to the Valley of Elah. Jerusalem is just up in the north. And so that gives you an idea of, of the general geography that we're talking about. Now, when I say valley, I don't know what comes into your mind. And so I want to show you a picture. First picture I'm going to show you is just Ariel looking down. This is the Valley of Allah. And I think I've got a, a next picture. There's a, a, a stream bed down in the bottom of this valley. Most of the time it's pretty dry. But if it's seasonal and there's been good rains, the water from this valley kind of comes down and there's a little stream bed. So when you think about David going down to the stream bed and getting the stones, you're not thinking like the edge of the Mississippi River, right? You're thinking like a a creek, and it might dry up if there's a drought, but there might be water in it if there's rain. Little bitty creek that runs right down the middle of this valley. And then I'll show you one more picture that gives you an idea of the the slope and the, the scope of things. We're not talking about the Royal Gorge in Colorado here, right? We're not talking about the Rocky Mountains and big, huge cliffs and, and mountain faces. We're kind of just talking about rolling hills, right? And David is coming from 10 to 15 miles from the east, and he's coming over, and he comes over the precipice of this hill. It's not a big hill. It's just you come over the top. It's unfamiliar to us in West Texas. We don't have a lot of hills, but he comes over the top of the hill, and you can just see everything spread out in front of you. And I don't know exactly what it was like for David to sort of come to the top of that hill and look over and look down, but... I imagine it was at least a little bit like the feeling when you go to your very first Major League Baseball game, right? And you walk up to the outside and you see the big stadium and it's so impressive and nice looking and you go in through the ticket stuff and you go through the steps or the stairs or the ramps or whatever and then at some point you kind of come through the tunnel, right? And you just have a little bit of glimpse of what's coming and you come through the end of the tunnel and then you see the whole field out in front of you and it's just... It, it almost takes your breath away. If you don't like sports, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. But you just, you can, 
visualize that. You can feel that feeling that you get when you walk into a, a stadium or an arena and you see all the participants out on the field and the grass spread out in front of you. And I think there had to be a little bit of that for David when he comes over the top of this hill and he looks down and he gets his first glimpse of the battle lines being drawn. And over on one side of the valley, you can see it's not that big, right? It's shouting distance across. You got the Philistines camped on one side and you got the army of Israel camped on the other side. And here's little David the shepherd boy. He comes over the hill and he sees the whole thing spread out before him. And there's kind of like an aha moment of, ah, this is what happens when the brothers go off to fight in the war. This is what they've been doing. This is what it looks like. This is what it smells like. This is what it sounds like. All of those things going off in David's life and in his mind. I like the way Eugene Peterson describes it. I I put this quote, it's a little bit long, but I put it in here just because I think it gives you a feel for what David walks into when he walks over this hill. He says, my attention is caught and held by this wonderful but improbable scene. David is on his knees at the brook. David kneeling and selecting five smooth stones, feeling each one, testing it for balance and size. David out in the middle of the valley of Allah in full view of two armies, Philistine and Israelite, gathered on either side of the valley, kneeling at the brook, exposed and vulnerable. Such a slight figure, this young shepherd, he's so unprotected The air is heavy with hostility. There isn't a man on either side of the valley who isn't hefting a spear, sharpening a sword, getting ready to kill. The valley of Allah is a cauldron in which fear and hate and arrogance have been stirred and cooked for weeks into what's now a volatile and lethal brew. And David, seemingly oblivious to the danger, ignoring the spiked forest of spears and the glint of swords, kneels at the brook. The oddness and the improbability of David kneeling at the brook is made even more improbable, if that's possible, by two giants, one on either side of the valley. On the Philistine side, Goliath. On the Israelite side, Saul. Saul wasn't a true giant, but his size was considerable. He stood, we're told, head and shoulders above his countrymen. And that's the scene that we're sort of jumping into in 1 Samuel 17. And so our approach is going to be pretty simple. I want us to read it. When you come to a story like this in the Old Testament, many times it's so familiar to you that you don't ever take the time to actually slow down and read the story and hear all of the details that are there or that aren't there. And so we're going to read most of this chapter tonight. We'll read it in chunks. And I'd like us to begin by reading the first 30 verses. And so you have a Bible, you follow along. I'm going to read 1 Samuel 17 verse 1 all the way to verse 30. I know that's a long stretch, so stick with me. Here we go, David and Goliath. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sakah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sakah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, And they drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. 
He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. And he stood, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning. He left his sheep with a keeper, took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to battle, uh, out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Let me point out a couple of things as you think about that section of the story. First of all, a lack of faith and a lack of focus on God caused Israel to be overly impressed with Goliath and 
contemptuous of David. They think too highly of Goliath. They're too impressed. And they think too little of David. They hold him in contempt. So they're overly impressed with Goliath and they're contemptuous of David. And on the one hand, you just you say, who could blame them? Depending on how you crunch the math out here and how you think the, the translation is working, Goliath stood at about 9'9". Nine, 9'9". Nine, nine That's a big man. Today I took Noel to the orthodontist. Noel's my second oldest daughter. My oldest daughter had a friend there, and the friend saw me with Noel and texted Emma and said, the tallest person in Odessa just walked into the orthodontist. I think it's your dad. So that's, I get tallest in Odessa at 6'4 and a smidge. Goliath is 9'9". He had a coat of mail. You crunch the numbers, it weighed about 125 pounds. The head of his spear weighed about 25 pounds. And don't forget he had a soldier who carried his shield for him. So when you fight Goliath, you're not just fighting Goliath, but it's really two people that you're fighting, Goliath and his shield bearer. And for 40 days, morning and night, Goliath walks out in front of the army of Israel and he taunts them and he defies them and he mocks their God. 40 days of Goliath proves that Saul is utterly incapable as king. And I just want you to think about the 40-day part of the story. 40 days. If God's plan is to send David to put a rock in his forehead and take his own sword and cut his head off, spoiler alert, that's what's about to happen if you haven't read the story. Why let Goliath run his mouth for 40 days? Morning and night. Why let that go on? Forty days of Goliath mocking Israel and mocking Yahweh. It's proof when David finally shows up that Saul has had every opportunity to march his backside out there and fight for Israel. He's the biggest guy in the country. He stands head and shoulders above his countrymen. And for 40 days, Saul does absolutely nothing. And God lets it go on for 40 days. He could have sent David from Jesse the very first morning. David could have walked in the first morning and the story could have unfolded exactly the same. But 40 days go by and it's proof that Saul is utterly incapable as king. David enters the valley of Allah with faith and God focus. Faith and God focus. Too often you and I think about God as a Sunday thing or maybe a Wednesday night thing. We're here on a Wednesday night, so we'll say Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. That's when we do God stuff. We talked about this last week, this idea that we have sacred things and secular things and we just need to blow that distinction out of the water and realize that God focus should be part of our lives every moment of every single day. And many of these Israelites, they observed the Sabbath, they worshipped Yahweh, they sang the songs, they read the Torah, but in their minds, that was a Sabbath thing. That was the spiritual aspect of life. This was fighting. 
This was the military. This was grit and blood and guts and muscle and iron and swords and weapons. It was secular stuff, and God didn't have anything to do with that. David comes over the hilltop, and in David's mind, God has something to do with every area of his life. And he doesn't segregate that out to the Sabbath only or to singing songs only or reading the Torah only. David looks at this Philistine, and in his mind, God is part of this whole equation. No one else is thinking about God in any way, shape, or form. David walks in thinking about God, and he hears Goliath cursing the Lord. This is just a little bit of sanctified speculation, but that may have been the very first time David heard anyone curse the Lord and mock the Lord out loud. Can you remember the first time you heard somebody use profane language and mock the Lord? I don't know if you can think about that moment. I don't know that I remember the, the very first time I heard that. I do remember in elementary school, Belmar Elementary, Amarillo, Texas, a bunch of kids in the panhandle were shocked when Tony Scariotti from New York moved to Amarillo. And we knew people who said bad things, but we didn't know people who said bad things like Tony Scariotti did. And he showed up and he taught the whole first grade or second grade or whatever it was. He taught all of us a whole new vocabulary. And at first you hear that and you think, oh my goodness, what is this guy talking about? I remember the shock of that. I also remember the first time I thought I was big enough to take God's name in vain in front of my parents. I remember the house we lived in. I remember where I was at in the backyard. I remember the part of the trampoline I was standing on when I popped off and took God's name in vain. And my dad just looked at me and my mom said, excuse me? Like I remember it. That moment is burned into my psyche. David didn't have Netflix to turn on and listen to all the garbage. He didn't have iTunes or Spotify to stream music and download music and listen to filth on all of that. He didn't have social media to get on and see people saying things that were mocking towards Yahweh. There wasn't a lot of intercultural sort of rubbing of shoulders with Israelite and Philistine people. These folks tended to keep to themselves. This may have been the very first time in David's life When he walks over the hill and he hears Goliath calling everyone out, that he hears somebody mocking Yahweh or his people. What about all the other soldiers who heard the same thing? I imagine the first time that Goliath came out and said it, it really bothered him. And then I bet when he came out that evening on the first day and said the same thing, they thought, oh, here we go again, same old thing. And then when he came out the second morning, and gave the same speech, they thought, yeah, we've heard this. And by evening on the second night, they were used to it. Didn't even bother them. David walks in, faith in Yahweh, focus on Yahweh. He hears this man mocking the Lord and mocking his people. And I think David's mind probably goes to the Torah, Leviticus 24, 16. Says this, I'll put it up on the screen for you. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. David hears it and he says, why haven't we stoned this guy yet? Why haven't y'all done anything? 
Everyone else has just kind of gotten used to it. David is not used to it. He clearly sees who the enemy here is, and he sees who the enemy isn't. Because there he is asking questions, what's going on, what's Saul going to do, why is this being allowed to happen? And big brother comes over, maybe big brother was the first person that David heard curse, I don't know. But big brother comes over and he tells David, get out of here, you're a runt, go back to the sheep, no one cares about you, you're just in the way, you're going to get hurt. He's angry with David. And David could have very easily shifted focus and thought, you know what, Eliab? I think I'm big enough to take you on now. And you and I know if he's big enough to take on Goliath, he can surely handle Eliab. But he doesn't doesn't bother with Eliab. He knows who the enemy is. He knows who the enemy is not. Look at 1 Samuel 17, verse 31. We're going to read to verse 40. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. You are but a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And we talked about this recently. He kept sheep for his father a day earlier. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. I struck him. I delivered him out of its mouth. If he rose against me, I caught him by his beard. I struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, and it's all caps, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Yahweh be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped on a sword over his armor. He tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these. I have not tested them. So David put them off. He took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook. He put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. I want you to understand when you read this interaction between David and Saul that your history is important. It matters, but your history will not save you tomorrow. Your history is important, but your history will not save you tomorrow. Peterson says it like this, Israel had a glorious history, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, but history, no matter how glorious, doesn't save anyone. Every person learns the way of faith freshly or not at all. David and Saul had all of the same information. They knew all of the the same stories. They, They had the Torah. They were familiar with it. Right? I had you write down these most famous stories. Several of those stories are in the scriptures that David and Saul would have had at that time. They knew the same stories that you wrote down. They were just as familiar with them as you were. Right? History is important. You need to know it. But history alone isn't going to save you tomorrow unless that history moves you to be a person of faith in the future. 
the victory that you won yesterday is not going to help you tomorrow. You have to be ready to fight tomorrow. You have to put on the armor of God tomorrow. Just because you defeated Satan or a temptation or a, a struggle yesterday doesn't mean it's in the bag tomorrow. Saul knows the history. He doesn't do anything with it. There's no faith. I wish I could give you an explanation for why Saul goes along with this plan. I mean, the taunt has been thrown out. Send someone out. We'll fight one-on-one. Whoever loses is the slave. Why risk it with David? I don't have a great explanation for that. Maybe you would come back and say, some commentators say, that was just Goliath talking. That wasn't the real bet. That wasn't the real wager. No one had any expectation that only two people would fight and then the rest of them would go into slavery. Maybe they didn't really expect that to happen. Even if he didn't expect to send all the people into slavery, why send David? Why, when everyone else is too scared to go, send a shepherd with no armor to fight Goliath? And this is the best attempt at an explanation I can give you. When your focus is not on God and your faith is not resting on the Lord and you are not walking in obedience, there really isn't a lot of rhyme or reason to the things that you do. Sometimes it just doesn't make sense. I had a conversation with somebody today over lunch and we talked about some things going on in their life and you know, he sort of said, I, I'm struggling to make sense of, of what's going on here and, and why this person is saying these things and doing those things. And I said, I don't think there's any sense to be made of any of it. Sin doesn't work like one, two, three, draw a straight line and you connect the dots and it's nice, neat, and it, it's logical. It's just illogical. It's just irrational. It doesn't make any sense at all. Why would Saul let David go fight? I don't, I don't have any explanation. It's completely ridiculous. It's entirely bizarre that he would send him out to fight, but that's what he does. So let's read what happens. 1 Samuel 17, verse 41. We're going to read to verse 54. It says, The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came 
and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag. He took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran over, stood over the Philistine, and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Several things I want you to see here. David's faith and his God focus move him to take courageous action. There is no question when you read this story that David displays guts or courage or moxie or whatever you want to call it. He has it on full display. And none of it rests in him. It all rests in Yahweh. This is his God focus. This is his faith in the Lord. Robert Bergen says it like this in his commentary. Easily the most beloved story in First and Second Samuel is the account of David killing Goliath. But the biblical narrative is not primarily a story about human courage and effort. Instead, it's about the awesome power of a life built around bold faith in the Lord. And there's a difference in those two. There's a difference in reading this story and teaching this story and saying, David is so brave, you can be just like David. And saying, David trusted the Lord, you can trust the Lord. One motivates you and challenges you to trust in your own abilities. One motivates you and challenges you to say, I can't do it on my own, but I can trust God to do what I would never be able to do. I want you to note that David only makes one observation about Goliath in the whole story. Did you note it? He says it twice. He says, he's an uncircumcised Philistine. I just want to be clear with you that when David says that, he's really not talking about anatomy. That's not the point. The point is, that man does not worship the one true God. That man has not submitted himself to the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is not part of the covenant people of the Lord. He is not trusting in the one true God. He is an uncircumcised Philistine. What does everyone else want to talk about? How tall he is? How heavy his armor is? How tough the shield bearer probably is? how long the, the, the javelin spear is, the bronze armor on his legs, the fact that he's undefeated in battle. Saul wants to talk about he's been fighting all of these years. Here's all the fights he's won. He's been a champion and a, and a soldier since he was your age. All David notices is that man does not trust in the Lord. I trust in the Lord and that man does not trust in Yahweh. David says more about God than he says about Goliath. His focus is not on Goliath at any point in the story. 
He hears the cursing. He sees him out there defying the armies of the Lord, but his focus is consistently on God. And the things that he talks about, even when he talks to Saul and even when he has interaction with Goliath, really doesn't have much to do with Goliath. It has everything to do with the Lord. I think David learned that kind of focus maybe from Samuel. Do you remember when Samuel came to town and he started with Eliab and then he moved to Abinadab? Then he moved to Shema, and he moved all the way down the list, and he's looking outwardly. He's looking for big. He's looking for strong. He's looking for powerful. And God says to Samuel, Samuel, I don't need somebody big. We have someone big on the throne, and he's a train wreck. The Lord looks at the heart, and I'm looking for someone who would be a man after my own heart. David takes that exact same mindset that the Lord looks at the heart, not on the outside, And he marches into the valley thinking and focusing on God. Licato says it like this. Max Licato is great with words. He says, no one else discusses God. David discusses no one else but God. Everyone else talking about Goliath. David only talking about Yahweh. David also understood he was fighting alongside the armies, not army, but armies of Israel. And that's in the text several times. I tried to emphasize it as we read through the story. There was a Philistine army and there was an Israelite army. And David keeps saying, I'm with the armies of the Lord. And it's this idea you see later with the prophets that there is a a visible army fighting for the Lord in the Old Testament. And there is an invisible army fighting with Israel in the Old Testament. And David walks into this scene Everyone else focusing on the Philistines and Goliath. David focusing on Yahweh and things that cannot be seen. David's pointing you to Jesus. This is the most important part of the David and Goliath story. David is not simply giving you a model of how to be courageous. He's giving you a picture of what Jesus would do for his people. David battling the enemy of Israel is a picture of Jesus battling the enemy of God's people. There's a parallel here that you can't miss. And if you only get to the part of the story and in applying it where you say, be like David, be courageous, have faith, trust the Lord, you miss the most important part of the story, which is David pointing you to Jesus. Just like David, Jesus represented his people. And this is a biblical theme from beginning to end. The Bible says that in the beginning, God creates man and woman, and Adam in the garden is our representative. Paul explains this perfectly in Romans 5. Adam was our representative. What he did in the garden counted for us. His victory would have been our victory, and his failure became our failure. It's so close, this level of representation, that Paul says when Adam sinned, We sinned. We fell with him. His action had direct consequence on you and me and every person born from his line. Adam was our representative. Here in the valley, David is representing the people. Saul had 40 days to go out and fight as the representative. And he completely took a pass. David comes over the hill. He hears everything. He sees everything. And he says, I'll stand 
for the people. If you and I are like anybody in the story, it's probably not David. It's probably the Israelites and Saul who were terrified, refusing to go out and fight, needing someone to go out on our behalf. That's who we are in the story. And David is giving you a picture of what Jesus does. In the wilderness and on the cross, Jesus represents his people in his obedience and in his death. So let me just give you some of the parallels here. It's such a beautiful thing to see side by side. Like David, Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Like David, Jesus was a king without a throne. Like David, Jesus was sent to the battle by his father. Like David, Jesus was mocked by his brothers. Like David, Jesus was empowered by God's word. And like David, Jesus fought for his people. And you lay that out side by side and you look at the parallels and you say, this is way more than be brave, be courageous, you can do it. This story is saying, you can't do it. You haven't done it. You won't be able to do it, but Jesus can do it. God will send somebody to fight for his people, and that somebody was Jesus. One last thought, this story, the story of David and Goliath, it reminds us that God delights to use weak, foolish people. He delights to use weak, foolish people. What was David doing when he walked into the valley? He was a cheese delivery man. Take the cheese to the battle. That's your job. Of all the people that God could have used to kill this Philistine, he could have used any of them. He says, I'll take the cheese delivery man. And he doesn't need any of the armor. He's just going to have the old shepherd's pouch on his side. And he's going to put a few rocks in that thing. And with one of those rocks, he's going to take this guy down right between the eyes. And then he's going to take that man's sword and chop his head off and leave with the giant's head. The cheese man, the cheese delivery man, kills the giant with a rock. This is kind of like Paul telling the Corinthians, hey, don't forget who you are. You're a bunch of foolish, weak people. Not many of you are noble, not many of you are strong, not many of you are wise, not many of you are accomplished, not many of you are a big deal. You're just sort of ordinary folks. And you're just the kind of folks that God wants to use. Shepherds from Bethlehem. Carpenters from Nazareth. Nobodies. People that the world doesn't expect. Why? Why did Paul say that God wanted to use people like that in Corinth? So that in the end, God gets all the credit. God gets all the glory. You don't look at the vessel and say, Look at those great people. No wonder God could do great things through Emmanuel Baptist Church. You look at Emmanuel Baptist Church and you say, eh, eh, not that impressive. Building's kind of old, kind of smells. People are kind of weird. I don't know. I just, pastor, he, I don't know. It's not that great. But God's going to use people who have faith in God focus. Because in the end, he gets all the glory for that, using the cheese delivery guy. And God doesn't really give us advance notice of when and where he's going to use us for his glory. That's part of the beauty of David's God focus when he walks over the hill. It would have been so easy for David to just have the mindset, 
I got to deliver this cheese and I got to go home to the sheep. Drop off the cheese, go home to the sheep. That's my job. Instead, he walks in focused on the Lord and he sees exactly what God wants him to do. And there's not any notice. Jesse doesn't say, hey, deliver the cheese and take a few rocks in case you need to kill a giant on the way. It's just take the cheese. Just do something mundane. Do something you would rather not be doing. Do something that you see is completely unimportant. And in the middle of that, out of nowhere, God might present you with an opportunity to show faith and God focus. Chuck Swindoll says it like this. The sun rose that morning just like any other morning for both David and Goliath. That's the way it often is in life. No warning. But the truth is, that 41st morning of Goliath's challenge would be the last day of his life. And the first day of David's heroic life. Nobody announced it. No angel blasted a horn from heaven. The opportunity just presented itself, and it will be the same in your life and in my life. There will be no warning sign. There will be no text message. There will be no email. There will be no alert that comes through that says, hey, today's the day. You're going to need God focused today. You're going to need faith today. You're going to need to be ready today. You're just going to be in the midst of delivering cheese, and then there it's going to be. And so my prayer for you and my prayer for myself is that we are people of faith and people of God focus and that God would use us for his glory.